Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Women, I, don't know, I, don't, I do not know him. A little later, someone else on seeing him said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then about an hour later, yet another kept insisting, Surely this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then, the, then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Send my, Tend my sheep. He said to him, The third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said to this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, when I look back to my childhood, which is getting to be quite a few years in the rearview mirror, I'm afraid, um, I grew up, hard for these young people to believe, but televisions were just coming in when I was a kid. And I think that our family must have been one of the last families in the city to own a television. And you know, and finally my parents broke down and got one, but even after they did that, its use was still pretty limited. However, mother did allow a certain amount of indulgence on Saturday morning cartoons. Now the problem with that was that they came on really, really early on Saturday mornings and sometimes I would just sleep through them. But on days when we awakened early, my older brother and I loved to watch Looney Tunes and all of those characters that have become classic over the years. Well, one of those characters that we would sometimes see in our Saturday morning cartoons was Little Lulu. 
Now, yeah, I hear a few chuckles. I don't recall just a whole lot about little Lulu. She wasn't really a personal favorite. There were others I liked better. What I do remember about little Lulu is she seemed to be a rather trying child who was always getting into some sort of difficulty, and her difficulty was often because of her own willfulness. You know, looking back, I think maybe she was a bit of a brat. I'm not sure. But um, what I do remember, I mean, I can still see this cartoon in my mind's eye all these many years later, is when something would happen and disaster was looming, there were these other little creatures and these little characters, they were kind of imp-like creatures, and they would gather around and kind of circle her, kind of ring around the rosy and dance around, and they would sing this little ditty, and the little ditty went like this. Now, you done it, you done, done, done it, now, you done it again. And they would just sing it over and over, dancing round and round. Now you've done it. You've done, done, done it. You know, when I think about it, I think there must have been that sort of a refrain that rang through Peter's mind and heart in the days that followed Jesus' crucifixion and even after the resurrection. I think he was hearing within him, now you've done it. You've done, done, done it. And what we heard this morning, and thank you all for reading, it's such a familiar part of the passion story, isn't it? Jesus led away captive from the Garden of Gethsemane and his disciples fleeing. And then some little while later, Peter reappears from wherever it is that he has run off to, and he decides that he will go along to the house of the high priest where they've taken Jesus to see if he can figure out what is going on and he'll listen into the scuttlebutt and he'll be the first to take the news to all of the other disciples. Peter is going to be the tough guy of the group. So we, we heard this scripture and there he is in the courtyard and he's warming himself by the fire in the middle of this chilly night. He's, he's there, he's trying to look like he fits in, like he's supposed to be there with everybody else. He's kind of trying to do that fly under the radar thing, not wanting to be too obvious. He gets by with it for a little bit and then it happens. The questions start coming. Aren't you a Galilean? Didn't I see you with him? And there are questions that are quickly followed by denials. You know, Peter starts this, not me, not me, not me, uh-uh, uh-uh, you got the wrong guy. And three times that happened. And then at the third time, the rooster crowed. And Jesus turned and looked at him. And at that moment, Peter realized he'd done it. 
He done, done, done it. You know, not very long before that moment, he had been so sure of himself. He had declared to Jesus in front of all of his friends that he would be faithful. He wasn't going to be like everybody else and forsake Jesus. And now he, here he is. He's not only a deserter like all the rest of his friends. He's worse than that. He's a denier. And scripture tells us he went out and wept bitterly. And that doesn't surprise us, does it? Because for Peter, it was defeat. It was absolute and it was irrevocable. The words he'd said, the oath he gave, the denial... It was done, and there was no way it could be undone. The words were out of his mouth. He couldn't get them back in. Defeat had happened, and Peter, who had intended to be so strong, had been so weak. Defeat. You know, when we think about it, there are all sorts of defeats, aren't there? Defeat can come to us in, in many different ways. You know, sometimes a person can, can be defeated by outside occurrences, things that, that you don't have any control over. And, you know, you might think about a, a farmer who's a good farmer. He knows when to plant the crops and how to take care of them. And he's desperately trying to retain this property that has been in his family for several generations. Got the crops planted, and then all of a sudden they're destroyed in a sudden hailstorm. Not his fault. But what was supposed to supply his livelihood is gone. And, and now the mortgage can't be paid. And, and foreclosure is inevitable. And it's going to be over. And when that happens, it's defeat. Or there's another kind of defeat. We think about the kind of defeat that might happen in something like the NCAA tournament. You know, when you get to the tournament, you've got two teams. They're teams who have worked really, really hard. And each of them is undefeated in the playoffs as they go into that final game. But you know, when you get to that game, even if both of those teams play to the absolutely best of their ability and just do things as right as they possibly can and really don't give the coach any reason to get on their case, somebody's going to go out of there at the end of the evening defeated. That's just the way it works. So there's that kind of defeat when you really have done your best, but it's, you don't win. And any and all defeat carries pain and disappointment. 
But what I really want us to focus on for these few minutes is the worst kind of defeat. The kind of defeat that Peter experienced. Not that inevitable defeat of a playoff game, but the worst kind of defeat is the defeat that we bring on ourselves. It's defeat that didn't have to happen. It's defeat where we are brought down by our own word or our own action. You know, and if you look through scriptures and the, the history in both the Old and the New Testament, you will find many people who were the cause of their own defeat. And I'd be up here all day if I've told you everybody, so I'm just going to give you a few examples. Jacob. For Jacob, it was greed that got the better of him. And so because his greed got the better of him, he cheated his twin brother, and boy, things went south real quickly, and he had to get out of there in a big hurry. And there were ramifications that lasted a long time. For Moses, Moses, who ended up being a great man of God, but as a younger man, Moses' anger resulted in an impulsive act of murder. And because of that, he ended up in 40 years of his exile. And the prince of Egypt, who had wanted for nothing, finds himself for 40 years the keeper of a bunch of smelly sheep out in the middle of nowhere. And then there's King David, who is still looked to by many Jewish people today as, as the greatest of kings. He got defeated, and the source of his defeat was his lack of sexual restraint and his lack of integrity. And that adultery with Bathsheba had far-reaching consequences. And you know, when you think about Jacob and Moses and David, I would suspect that each of these men heard ringing in their ears his own version of, now you've done it. So then we fast forward to... Um, the scripture from today. And here's Peter who had advantages that his predecessors didn't have. Peter had had three years of close communion with Jesus himself. Jesus who was God with skin on. But even after that, all of the opportunities that Peter had he still ended up like those others. He was defeated. He was done in by his own fear and by his very human desire to save his own neck rather than to be faithful to his Lord and to be faithful to those own promises that he had made just a little while before. Peter, too, had done it. 
You know, I've said on other Sundays that um, I, I, I love to come to Scripture and, you know, and if it's a story of an event, to kind of try to put myself in the place, in the room, whatever. And, and so I think about what if I had, what would I have seen if I had been with the disciples in those days and weeks after the resurrection, when Jesus would come and be with them. Well, what I suspect I would have seen is that all of Peter's encounters with Jesus after the resurrection would have been a little uncomfortable. Because face it, it wasn't like Jesus didn't know what Peter had done or that he somehow hadn't heard about it. I mean, good grief. It had been that look from Jesus that night that brought it all home to Peter. There was nowhere for Peter to hide from the reality of what it was that he had done. And so I suspect that whenever the group got together and Jesus was there, you know, I, can't you just hear Peter saying, Hi, Jesus, how you doing? Without ever quite meeting his eyes. And then deciding, oh, he needed to be in urgent conversation with one of the other disciples on the far side of the room. You know, when people deal with self-defeat, avoidance can seem like a real desirable option. Well, you know, friends, you and I are no better than any of these people that I've mentioned. We have similar shortcomings as they, and the list of things that gets all of us in trouble has pretty much remained constant throughout the generations. And yeah, our sin may dress a bit differently than it did a couple of thousand years ago, but it's still the same thing underneath. Greed, anger, lack of sexual restraint, lack of integrity, trying to save our own neck, wanting to fit in and not be thought odd by others, Going along with the crowd, all of that still happens. And because it still happens, at some point in our lives, most of us end up in a place like these that I've mentioned. We can end up defeated by our own hand. Good intentions get put aside. Self-interest takes hold. We betray ourselves. We betray everything that we hold dear. And we betray our God by our word and our action. And then we realize we've done it. We've done, done, done it. And the question is, what happens now? 
sometimes people want to, you know, say it's too hard and throw in the towel. Don't do that. Because we have the scripture that we heard this morning, the second one, that allows us to put ourselves in Peter's shoes and see how Jesus himself deals with a defeated disciple. Now, when we get to that second part of the scripture, it's been days and very likely weeks since the resurrection when we come to the beach on this morning. And Jesus knows absolutely what's going on and what kind of a place Peter is personally. And he wants Peter to experience restoration. And he knows that Peter needs to experience restoration. And he knows that Peter's defeat has to be defeated and that Jesus is the only person who can do it. So what does Jesus do here? How does the defeat of Peter's defeat happen? Well, we see several things. First of all, Jesus gives Peter an opportunity to face up to his past. The verses just prior to the ones that we heard tell us that the disciples were there on the beach with Jesus and they were gathered around a charcoal fire. And that in itself would have been a mute reminder of the fire that Peter warmed up by on that dreadful night. Peter would have connected the dots. And then there were those three questions from Jesus they kind of match the three denials. Honestly acknowledging personal failure was necessary for Peter, and it's necessary for us if we want to make a new beginning. One writer says it so well. He says, until there is a remembering, there can be no forgiveness. To remember means to put back together something that has been broken and disconnected. To truly remember requires that we turn back to past actions and relationships and recognize our own place within what happened. Only then can reconciliation be offered and received. In other words, there's no more running from reality. No more excuses. No more blaming others. No more sweeping things under the rug and trying to convince ourselves that Eh, well, what we did wasn't so bad, and, you know, lots of people do things like that. Mm -mm. Like Peter, when you and I are defeated, the first thing that we need to do is honestly face up to our actions, or our words, or our behavior. That has to be done. And then secondly, if our defeat is going to be defeated, 
It also means that we have to learn to love Jesus all over again. The question to Peter that day and the question to each of us is, do you love me? And when Jesus asks that, he's not asking about gooey feelings. Because on the night before he was arrested, and and his disciples and Peter that day would have remembered this, he had said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love is, love for Jesus is doing what he asks us to do. And our defeat is on the way to being defeated when our love for Jesus becomes more than just easy lip service of, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, I love Jesus. But it it needs to grow into an intentional way of living and a daily following in his steps and an ongoing transformation into what I call a Jesus-shaped life. Now, when Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments, you know, let's be honest with ourselves. There are some things that Jesus asks of us we really kind of wish he didn't. You know, turning the other cheek. There are a lot of times when we don't want to do that. You may think of others that you don't want to do. But keeping his commandments and love for Jesus go hand in hand, and they are part of the process of defeating defeat. And then there's one more thing that Jesus makes clear here, and that is this reconciliation that he has here with Peter and that he establishes for Peter and that I would say he, he makes available for each one of us. It isn't just so, so a person can, can feel good about themselves again and just go on their merry way oblivious to everybody else. No, Jesus is saying, okay, Part of defeating defeat is recognizing that there's a job to be done. And even though, yes, you've been defeated, I trust you to do it, not through your own power, but through my power. And so Jesus says here, take care of my sheep. And friends, defeating defeat includes living out our love for Jesus by loving the ones who are around us. And no, it's not easy. And we don't always want to do it. But I can say it no better than a man named Paul Murray. He puts it this way. He said, self-centered worship of Jesus is a contradiction in terms. If we truly love Jesus, we shall love others. Caring may be costly. For Peter, it involved a cross because we know from tradition that he too was crucified. Love that costs nothing is not love, but sentiment. I think that's a sentence that's worth remembering. 
Love that costs nothing is not love, but sentiment. And so Jesus called Peter to costly love, and he calls each one of us to costly love. And we realize that he deserves so much more from each of his followers than just sentiment. Now, as I wind this up here today, I imagine that there may be some of you sitting here listening to this thinking, oh, this sermon doesn't apply to me. I am not in a place of defeat. And I hope with all of my heart that that is truly the case for many of us here today. Most of us here today. But I suspect that there may be a few of you here or listening online who have been feeling that awful and sickening sense of defeat that Peter knew. Maybe it's been your anger that has broken relationships. Maybe there's some bitterness and unforgiveness that has just been eating away at your soul. Maybe your place of defeat is some sort of addictive behavior or a pornography habit. Maybe for you it's something that started out as a very, a fairly simple lie, you know, nothing all that bad. It didn't seem too bad at the beginning. And now somehow it has become this rather convoluted web of cover-up. But whatever your defeat is, you just keep plastering on a happy face so that nobody really knows how hollow you are on the inside. And so you don't have to admit that to yourself. I hope you're not a defeated person right now. But I can almost guarantee you that somebody in your family or in your circle of friends, co-workers, people you rub shoulders with, somebody is. Maybe what you need to do is to take this good news that Jesus can defeat defeat to somebody else. Because it is good news. Nobody needs to stay defeated. Jesus offers to every one of us exactly what he offered to Peter. He offers us an opportunity to face our own reality and to know his forgiveness. He offers us the opportunity to find our own healing through loving obedience to Jesus' commands, and then he offers us the opportunity to live as Jesus did, caring for the least and the lost and the downtrodden. And he promises us that we don't have to do this on his own, that he will give us his life, his power in us to do that. And we're going to be hearing a whole lot more about that in a few weeks when we get to Pentecost. So stay tuned. But friends, the offer to defeat our 
all too human defeat comes from Jesus himself. And I hope every one of you will always take him up on it. Amen.